Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. I'm your co-host, Aaron Cameron, and with me, of course, is Adam Pawatic. Our guest today, repeat guest, is Amy Erickson, who is the Principal and Managing Director of Global Investment Management at Avis & Young. Welcome back, Amy. Ah, thank you so much. Nice to be here. So the last time we had you on, we were doing futurist material, which is maybe we'll get to at some point this afternoon, or a little bit to anyway. But first and foremost, we're here to talk about a tenant survey that you had conducted in concert with Informa uh, and some other landlords. So maybe we just talk about how this came about in the first place. And this is the third year, if I remember correctly. But what maybe we talk about just how this started. Where did the where was the seed planted to get this going? Yes, well, obviously there is a lot of interest across the country in increasing the inventory of purpose-built rental apartments, and it is also stretched from a financial perspective. And so, our initial thought was maybe we ought to survey residents and find out what really matters to them, so that as people are putting together their projects and deciding between various configurations, amenities, and other characteristics that they would be able to have higher degree of confidence in selections that they know are going to drive market absorption and rental rates in the future. So we were really trying to close that gap. I have to say that the reaction to the information was much stronger in a positive way than we had anticipated. You mean by the tenants? By the tenants, we had a lot of take up initially with like two months to actually collect the information. We got about 18,000 responses wow, and every really? year, each year since the number of responses have doubled or tripled. So you're at, you know, 60,000 this time. Yes. Wow. And the first year we did the survey, the vast majority, like 85% of the respondents were in Toronto and Vancouver. And that was a result of putting the surveys up in elevators of high-rise buildings. We also had it on Kijiji and a few of the other rental sites. Surprisingly, that first year, despite the fact that we hadn't done outreach, we ended up with 20% of the respondents being people who were renting single-family houses. (laughs) So there was a lot of interest by renters, particularly in these less affordable markets, to articulate to the landlords what they weren't getting in the purpose-built rental stock. So the take-up that first year was so strong, we asked landlords who were interested in using the information and in actually getting some kind of granularity in their own buildings to help us with the promotion of the survey activities. And we had about eight companies come forward in the second year, and we had double that number this year. And that's partly the credit to the participation by the renters increasing so dramatically. Hmm. We also did outreach to the REITs and the known owners that have large concentrations of units in places where we thought that the demographics and the characteristics might be different from downtown Toronto and downtown Vancouver. So we reached out last year to include some of the college towns like Kingston and Waterloo. We did that, of course, across the country. We increased the participation in the Maritimes. We had a concentrated effort to increase 
our participation in Quebec. We had a ton of participation from Alberta this year. So that, as a backdrop to the discussion we're going to have about the results, the fact that the sample set is getting much more inclusive of all of Canada and much more representative of where the units are. So initially it was concentrated in the downtown urban areas who were about 80% of the respondents. Now we have about 60% a suburban or small town uh, participation. So it's definitely getting better every year in terms of its granularity on what is happening in the apartment market across Canada. And is the payoff to landlords that they get insight into their specific buildings from the respondents? Well, there's a dashboard where all of the data for all of the respondents is incorporated. And then we use that dashboard tool to parse the information to show trends, to show absolute values, and you can actually work with that tool if you're planning a project in the West Island of Montreal, you can parse it down to that submarket and you can see specifically what the people in that region said. If you are a sponsor company and help with some of the costs of collecting the survey, then you are also allowed to sort specifically for your buildings. And in that regard, we added tenant satisfaction section to last year's survey so that it can double as a litmus test and a benchmarking for the landlords that are helping us with pushing the survey out. You displayed or presented this, the results at the, uh, at the most recent real estate forum. It was, I think it was the apartment was the apartment forum in Toronto. Have you had more landlords approach you and say, okay, we want to participate as well. Here's our list of tenants. Like how do we get involved? Yeah, fortunately, I'm bringing intellectual capital in the market delivery of the information to our partnership with Informa, and they have the back office staff yeah, sure. that are getting all of those requests. I mean, I can correct. imagine you're going to have every major landlord across the country wanting to participate because the the more information, the more access, the better. And if you can sort and filter for your own specific buildings, like that, that's yeah. invaluable information. Right? I think that everybody had a marketing team that was doing its own forensic research and and coming up with their best guesses, but there really is very limited market information. And it's not the kind of data that CMHC collects robustly. Mm-hmm. And I think that the reaction to this tool was better than we expected. And we felt that it was a badly needed tool, especially as the affordability gets more difficult across the country, that it's really important information so that we can do a better job of matching the units that are being planned with the needs and the unmet needs in the marketplace. Is there a monetization aspect to it for landlords that don't participate or? Yes. Well, there's for anyone can go on the Informa website and I believe you're going to Yeah, we will put that in the show notes for everyone to go and look so you can have access to it after after we discuss it today. Right. So there's two sets of information that are widely available to everybody that is interested in learning more about what the survey contains and what the survey looks like. And that is there's a redacted portion of the survey itself and the dashboard so you can see how the tool works in order to test drive it and see if it's something that you think would be of high value to your organization. There's also a recording of my presentation of the key findings of the results. It's about 45 minutes in length, and so it covers quite a range of the categories. But we we asked about 118 different specific 
features or amenities this year, and we actually asked tenants, would you be willing to pay more for that, and how much would you be willing to pay? Zero to $5 a month, all the way up to $500 a month. And that was, I think, from a monetization perspective, people who are developing units or people who are renovating units and who are trying to make those granular decisions I think they found a high degree of value, monetizable value. Sure, sure. Before we get into the results and start discussing some of the more interesting aspects, do you want to talk about the methodology of collecting the information and what you, how you went through surveying the tenants? Yeah, Paul, I, I spoke a little bit about the push out to try and get participation rates up. The survey itself is done online, and it is a very lengthy question process, and there are sections, and you can elect to skip sections so that if people, if it's not applicable, because I don't have a patch, you can just skip that whole section in terms of getting through the survey in an orderly time period. But there's also sections where you can drill down in more detail. Like if you're particularly frustrated about your bathroom situation, we asked 15 additional questions about the bathrooms from, do you need a bathtub? Do you need an extra powder room, all those kinds of questions that are really useful from a development perspective in terms of understanding what people are willing to pay for and what people must have in order to consider renting in your buildings. What kind of input did the did the sponsorship, did the other the, the participating landlords give to you on kind of, hey, can you ask more questions about bathrooms? Yeah. Can you ask more questions about pets? Like, were they contributing to Yes, to absolutely. Every year I ask people when, when we're, and you'll see this if you go on to the website to look listen to the video, I ask people to use the Twitter hashtag that is set up for the session during the presentation to send us stuff. So while it's front of mind, we ask people to give us their business cards if they want to participate in the focus group, either electronically or in terms of meeting formats, to discuss priorities in terms of the questions that we're asking in the upcoming year. And we also invite people to send their email ideas. Sometimes I'd say that most of the ideas come in right at the time that the session is being aired. I think that once people get a hold of the dashboards and you can purchase the full dashboard, there's also a white paper that Informa put together called the A to Z of Renter Preference Trends Surveys, which really deals with trends and what was different year over year. And that it, there's a small modest fee for that, which is defraying the cost of the analysts who supported the preparation of that work. So those are different ways that people can engage. And the way to do that is through the Informa website. In terms of the uh, actual respondents, you you said it's strictly online? Yes. Is there, do you view perhaps a demographic bias as a result of simply doing it online? Or is the internet so pervasive now that it would fully sample the uh, renter profile? Well, I think the answer to that is it is changing year over year because of the locations of the units. We were very surprised the first year that we did the survey with how many seniors answered the survey. I mean, it's really surprising. It's like 22% of the people who responded were over 60. Hmm. And that it also showed up in the affordability statistics You would think that people on the front end of their career would be having more of a struggle in terms of affordability given the nature of the market today. And what we discovered is that young people are doubled up 
and they're whether they're renting a house with five of their buddies or they're just doubled up with two or three people in a regular apartment unit, young people were solving the affordability gap with collective units. The seniors and the older the people, the more severe their affordability issues were as reflected as the rent as a percentage of their income. And we were surprised at how many seniors were responding to the survey. As we've gotten more participation away from Toronto and Vancouver, that portion of senior participation is smaller. It was about 8% over 60 this year's survey. And we're also seeing a demographic profile of the survey respondents that relates more to what I would say you would expect to see in terms of a renter profile in that the bulge in the bell curve is between 30 and 40. And the next biggest chunk is between 20 and 30. And when we first did the survey, it was definitely much older. Hmm. Did you come into, I guess you probably have a great perspective now on what tenants want after doing this for a few years, but before year one, did you have your own preconceived notion about kind of what renters wanted and was there a fair bit of shock in terms of the actual reality of the numbers? Yeah. Well, the first year we were really pursuing what are the key location factors? What are the key amenities that really drive decision-making at the margin? And what we learned from that year is that there's a lot of things that people want that they're having to trade off in order to get into units that are priced. Where And again, this reflects the fact that it was so predominantly Vancouver and Toronto. And so we drilled down on a wide range of amenities. The first year, we were really surprised that the number one thing that people said they wanted was green features. That's so vague that we added about 20 different categories. What does that mean plants. to you? I want plants. Right. Does that mean plants? Does that mean that you want a terrace or a play area or a smart thermostat or you want heated floors? I mean, what, <laughs> what are we getting at here? And we found that the landlord community really wanted a lot more granularity around kitchens. Like, is a microwave essential or is that a nice to have and would people rent without it? And the same with respect to all the different appliances in the unit. And then that led to technical features like security systems and cameras and high-speed internet, which was in the second year, the overwhelming first must-have. Mm-hmm. So we, the third year, we really drilled down on a lot of the technology features, we, we increased the questions around technology a lot between year one and two, and then even more so between two and three, in order to understand people's e-commerce behavior, what kind of a factor Uber or Lyft is, and how their building accommodates that or doesn't accommodate that. The first year, probably the biggest single surprise in the survey was that more than half of the renters did not own a car, not at all. And again, this reflects the fact that it was predominantly Toronto and Vancouver, and it was actually about 63% of the people who responded didn't own a car. And that bled into people using access to transit as a key criteria for making their location decision. Now that the data is much more representative across Canada, still half the people don't own a car which is surprising. And more than half of the renters are families. So you start seeing some correlation because you can actually additively develop a profile 
based on that information, like of the families, how many don't own cars, and really drill down to understand whether this is a demographic issue or whether this is a real trend that Canadians are getting away from car ownership if they can possibly do it, or maybe it's a trade-off between renting a better quality unit and giving up your car. So there's a lot of richness to this data, and in 45 minutes, obviously, I only have time to talk about the highlights and maybe the top 10 things that were driving criteria. The third year we actually we blended the location characteristics and the amenity features in order to get more granularity about how people are making decisions and that was very interesting information as well should we jump into uh some of the the more interesting uh, findings we've talked about a few yeah if i can jump into one that i i saw after viewing the presentation there's two slides that really stuck out one was essential would not rent without features and the other one is the features not considered important. And if I was to project my own preconceived notions onto the answers, nothing lined up here. The one that really stuck out to me and the features not considered important is a dog washing station. And I only say that because <laughs> every builder I talk to talks about their dog washing station. They're going to include and just how there. important yeah. that is and pet yeah. amenities is what really drives, you know, tenant decision making. And it's clearly that that may be a misconception. Well, about a third of the renters have pets. And so I think the fact that it's coming up low in the survey, you know, one of the things that I would say just generically about the surveys is that people like the amenities. 85% of the people said they actually used the amenities that drew them to the unit that they rented in the first place. So there's a high correlation of decision-making and then actual use, and that's higher than I expected. So people who have pets obviously will not rent in a building that doesn't have, uh, that doesn't allow pets, and they will choose a unit that has a pet washing station for their own convenience and also because if you're in a building with pets, you want to make sure that the management is accommodating that and you're not getting mud dragged in through the, the common areas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But even that being said, it's funny on the, uh, the features not considered important list of the top five for them are animal related. We've got dog grooming, dog treats in lobby, dog walking, and dog washing station. <laughs> Which may just be that the the anti-pet consortium is just very highly opinionated, right? <laughs> but if you don't have a pet, you, do, you, do, you just you do definitely not want do it. not yeah. care about yeah. that stuff yeah. for sure. But you're paying a small premium to support somebody else's pet facilities. That's the... Yeah, uh, probably, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, you know, we each year we learned that there's still this big gap between the tenants' tech-savvy and the landlord's tech savvy. And I think we're at the point now uh, across the country where high-speed internet access is a must-have, not a nice-to-have. That's been true for a couple of years. And there's an increasing share of renters that are relying on e-commerce for at least some of their household activities. And so we drilled down this year on storage lockers and accommodation for those services with a concierge desk and so on. And people, they're not so fussy. I found that the renters are, are more practical than fussy and that being able to receive the packages is more important than having special amenities to support that in the 
high-end communities in the United States. They've got freezer rooms and, you know, every which thing, lockers so that you can put your dry cleaning in and someone comes and they have the code to your locker. They collect your dry cleaning and then they return it when they're, <laughs> so you don't have to actually leave the building. I mean, that's the sort of stuff that's going on and is very popular, particularly in the tech markets in the U.S. And Canadians were not that responsive to that sort of stuff. It's like it's good enough if the building just has a place where someone can leave the packages. And I don't have to worry about that. I don't need somebody to attend to it. And I don't necessarily need Amazon to have access to my unit, any of the rest of that. So it's you, we saw a big granularity in the fussiness, and we and it showed up in the tenant satisfaction surveys too. The tenants are very satisfied. Can we we go through that a little bit? The Amazon access. What is that? Well, you know that they've got a program where you can give them access to your unit, and they'll put the boxes in your unit. And, and through a through a key. I mean, most apartments are still they're not fob accessed, or is that that's right. what you're talking about? Well, when you know to that point, we asked about a lot of those features. We drilled down on does it matter to you if it's a key access or it's an electronic access hmm. <laughs> to the building, to the unit, you know. So they, we were trying to really understand where people, how sophisticated they were, and how concerned about having state of the art things they were. The 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 security doesn't seem to be a big issue. People were much more interested in soundproof walls and people were a lot more interested in in smart thermostats. So, and it's those sorts of choices over a high-tech security apparatus suggests that people want to be able to protect their privacy. That was more important to them. There's than almost a, a practicality that. to that. I, just, Very much I need so. to be able to control my heat and I need it to be quiet and I don't need these flashy things that you know, allow me additional services. It's just make sure that I'm it's quiet and make sure that I can keep my unit at the right temperature. Well, yeah. that and uh, many, many, many brand new units are submetered, so they have a direct impact. So I'm sure they care much more about smart thermostats in units where you're paying for those things than in units where the landlord's carrying the cost of your. Yeah, well, if anyone that ever has a has a Nest or a smart thermostat, they are very handy, right? When you leave the building, when you leave your apartment, when you leave your house, the temperature goes down. When you return, the temperature turns on and goes back up. Like there is some convenience to that. And of course, you're saving energy and it's good for the environment all at the same time. One of the interesting results that I found interesting was the the way that in which they communicate with their landlords. And how there's still a vast majority that it's letters under the door and there was a need or I guess the way it was phrased was how are you currently communicating and how would you like to communicate? And of course, I was just surprised that the number of communication that goes on by email or text messages is still relatively low predominantly. And then the need or the how would you like to communicate was predominantly email and by text. And so I'm guessing landlords took that and they're now trying to make that change. I hope that's the case. We definitely drive that message home every year about this is something that doesn't cost you much and makes a difference to your tenants. To be able to pay electronically is still very small percentage of yeah. the respondents. <laughs> like sixteen percent said they still pay by post dated check, right? Like I, I thought checks were banished. Like what's <laughs> going on? It's it's a function of the landlords being less sophisticated than their tenants, and it annoys people. So I think that in the scheme of things, I also try to call out the things that 
are not going to cost you much and make a big difference to your tenants. And the whole payment scheme and communication schemes lead that list. Right. Like how easy to set up an email address for your super property manager and that's just how they communicate. Like I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And most renters said they, their first choice is email. Their second choice is text. They'd like a phone call if it's a problem that's getting solved. They'd like to discuss it. And their low, low choices, like 3% of people want a flyer under the door. It's just like- Yet, but that's the major, that's still the main source of communication, <laughs> well, right? we're getting there. <laughs> Do you ever have any uh, landlords who saw the results, we'll say disagree with some of your findings or- or do you find any resistance to any of the you know recommendations that might come out of this uh, survey? Maybe people don't share those thoughts with me, <laughs> but I do hear from people that they're surprised by findings. You know, particularly the parking ones. And just to drill down on parking a little bit more. You know, this is a zero-cost suggestion. If you are in an urban area and your parking lot seems empty, give people the ability to elect you know, whatever, a $5 a month discount if they don't need parking and then identify parking and put put it to work. Yeah. You know, because there are some people who will pay for a guest spot or for an extra space. So, you know, that spending some time looking into managing your parking is time well spent. About 70% of renters said they won't pay for parking. Hmm. So that, I don't know what percentage of that was people who didn't own cars because they might have skipped over the section. But parking, you know, we think about it in the, and the zoning officials are very aggressive about parking because they want the cars off the street. But it's a big expense and it's, it's possibly the single largest category where we could make a dent on affordability to just get smarter yeah. about how we're doing that by using this information to inform the and that, that question, that question is so not broad, but if you're you know asking urban major urban center tenants, of course they're going to have a different opinion about paying for parking. They appreciate that land is you know at a premium, and if I want to have a parking spot, I'm just going to have to pay for it. Versus the the tenant of a twelve plex in Sault Ste. Marie, where there's you know they're not, why would I ever pay for parking? There's a hundred parking spots outside of my twelve plex, right? So it's a, I guess you almost have to get much more in depth when you start analyzing who's responding to what in what way. Yeah, that's right. The thing that people were willing to pay the most for was an extra bedroom. And I think that speaks to the preponderance of renters being families Mm -hmm. and the preponderance of new construction being single-bedroom units. And so there's a big mismatch there. And people indicated the median score about how much more would you be willing to pay was $200 a month, which is real. That's material. And there were many people, particularly families, who would pay four or $500 a month more. So that suggests that there is a real shortage of larger units. And the units themselves don't necessarily need to be larger, but they need to have more bedrooms. Mm-hmm. And this was showing up most acutely, not surprisingly, in the families who had dependents who were teens. Yeah, of course. And then also correlated with that was an extra be- bathroom, even if it's a powder room. And people were willing to pay quite a bit of money, like 150 to 200 was really the bulge in the bell curve on what you'd be willing to pay for an extra bathroom, even if it's a powder room. But that I think also reflects the doubling up by young people and the family 
composition yeah. of the older ranchers. There was a number of respondents in that particular section about how much will you pay, and, and like you, as you talk about the bell curve, there's there's the people that just say zero, and then and then it kind of goes up to so about a hundred, hundred and fifty, depending on what you're talking about, whether it's parking spots mm-hmm. or additional utilities or whatever the question was, and then it would come back down like a typical bell curve, but then often at the end of the tail there was an, another increase, so there were some people just say it was so valuable to them, their answer was, oh, I'll pay more than five hundred dollars, versus even though the average was one fifty. Can you explain that, or is it simply just because there are certain people that value it with so highly that the cost is irrelevant. I think that the, there are supply crunches in Vancouver and Vancouver in particular, but Vancouver and Toronto, where people are having to live with units that don't meet their needs. And you know that's part of the reason why we drilled down on tenant satisfaction so that we could understand whether this was a management issue or whether this was a unit availability or an affordability problem. And there's a lot of detail in here, so generalizing is a little risky. Challenging, yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah. But in general, when you're getting answers like that, they tended to be in locations where they're particularly supply constrained. Right. Where if I could get a second bedroom, that would be amazing. I'll pay whatever it would take, but I can't find one anyway, so it doesn't matter. Exactly. Right? You know, you talked about, I think before we started recording about, you know, what this has really led to, at least one conclusion was that there is a need and a demand for larger units, more bedrooms, and that, you know, we're predominantly not building that style, though that sweet mix. Do you think that this, and I don't think it's a secret, but do you think that landlords are looking at ways to include more two and three and maybe even four bedroom units in their their new apartment construction? How am I counter to that is that may not be economical. Well, I think that there's clusters of information. One of the most valuable things is going into the family, just sorting for families. Because if you're thinking about going down the two or three bedroom route, Uh, then there's a whole bunch of other information that you really ought to know. Like there's different parking characteristics, what percentage of the people will pay for on-site childcare. The need for outdoor access is much higher with that population than just regular adults. There's a lot of information that you would want to get your hands on to inform your planning process, and then that'll lead you to a different location and possibly a more suburban location. Sure. Because of the confluence of those features. One of the most persistent things that has come through each of the year's surveys is that people are willing to trade off size for location. And that doesn't mean that they still don't want a second bedroom, but you might not have to build a lot bigger unit. Right. It's just a question of how you I'll take I'll take less common area or less living room, dining room space, kitchen space for the additional bedroom. Mm-hmm. So it's still an 800 square foot unit, but it just has that two, two walled, two, two rooms. Right. Well, and this year we really tried to drill down on that kind of, you see it happening in the millennial hotel business where they have beautiful, large common areas where people congregate and the units are getting smaller and smaller. In fact, I've been in several units in New York. They're smaller than this conference room. <laughs> I mean, like, and this is like maybe a hundred square feet. Yeah. Right? They, they yeah. squeeze a bathroom in there and you know, you, <laughs> it's, it's quite something being in those units. There's almost enough room to walk around the bed, <laughs> but you're kind of pitching yourself into the bed. <laughs> because, yeah. uh, it's like a Japanese or, hotel. Right? Yeah, or maybe it's uh, against one wall and there's, 
two and a half feet. I mean, you wouldn't want to be oversized trying to stay in those units. But the common areas are really nice. And what we saw this year is that people don't want to live in that setup. They definitely want to have... They want to have each of the rooms. They just want to have more rooms. Yeah. So. Well, culturally, we're not there. In other parts of the world, they are, but we're definitely not in Canada. Yeah. Do you see, and I just, I heard this most recently at the at the real estate forum a couple of weeks ago, where there's some, there are some developers looking at, you know, sort of the student housing structure, but not for students, right? Where you would build, you know, it'll have three kind of independent rooms. It really does just to combat for affordability, where you can you can get more people paying higher rents in the smaller space, where they may not be strangers, they may be strangers, but they kind of have their own independent rooms with their own ensuite, and then they have a common area between them. So it is quasi student housing. However, it's just built for the twenty somethings that are out of university and working their first job and just need to live downtown or want to live close to close to the downtown core, whether that's any major urban center in Toronto or sorry in Canada. Have you heard about this? Have you, do you have any experience with that? And how would that line, I guess, just to tie everything together with, with some of the results of the survey? Yeah, I've seen that in Europe. We have half of our portfolios in Europe, and we actually have quite a line of sight into the apartment markets there. I've seen that there. I have not seen that in the North American markets where we are investing. I think that's certainly interesting. And maybe it's a, a we live Kind of concept. Well, yeah. or, and I think Airbnb announced that they're going to start working on purpose-built Airbnb-type facilities, and they they might be a group that would experiment with that. I'm not convinced that the information that we have been gathering, for, we haven't been zeroed in on that question, but, for example, people indicated that, a majority of people indicated that while it'd be nice to have a common terrace, they don't want to give up their personal balcony for a common terrace. So I think, to the comment earlier, our market, isn't at that kind of pressure point that in New York and London are where people just, the the affordability issues are so acute that they're trading down privacy for affordability. For affordability, yeah. Yeah. Or location, I guess, if if that's the the case. I wanted to ask, uh, one of the slides that we saw in the presentation was about landlord ratings. Mm Mm-hmm. I was surprised. I mean, you've seen the paper that you know, landlords get a lot of bad press. And of course, that's just a handful of them. But the satisfaction levels seem to be very high for the most part. I mean, if we're looking at the numbers here, only 3% rated their landlord as very low quality, or even 7% as low quality. So you're talking about 10% of the population viewing their landlord in a negative light. I think that you know the flip side of that is 90% looking at a a neutral or above is probably pretty good satisfaction level, in my opinion. Yeah, well, I'm 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 certain that that reflects the fact that cutting edge landlords are who are driving our tenant responses, because there's a certain amount of push and pull in terms of who is responding. And it's not the slumlords approaching <laughs> you saying, "Hey, can you pen it, can you survey my buildings? I want to know what everyone thinks." Yeah. No, I think it's it's good news though because some of the mythology around rental apartments like that it's a hamster cage and you have a lot of turnover and you have a lot of turnover expenses in Canada is just wrong. A very high percentage of people stay in their units for a very long time. And it's period going down, time. going down significantly. A, and part of that is affordability, but part of it is satisfaction. And I think that there is a high degree of granularity to how people make 
decisions about where to live. And then once they, as long as they are satisfied with the management and with the their choice of amenities, back to my point that 80 some percent of people said that they actually use the amenities that were important to their decision-making criteria. And the, the satisfaction with landlords in Canada, at least the big landlords, is high. It's mm. great. You know, there's, and the things that they complain about are not being able to pay their rent online <laughs> and uh, not being able to communicate more fancy free, like having to go into the management office is annoying because if there's other people there, you're, you're in a than, queue you know. or something. <clears throat> yeah. No. Those are high class problems. Yeah, of course, seriously. <laughs> and they're they're easy and cheap for the landlords to fix. Yeah. So I do, that's that's what I would call that a good value add for. Yeah, and I, and I and I hope and I'm sure this has driven lots of decision making and lots of improvements at many of the landlords' buildings, which is great. Again, a positive for tenants. We talked obviously a couple of times now about easy, not easy fixes, but I guess cheap fixes with you know big impact on the tenants. What if a landlord's inclined to cut a big check? They're going to put a bunch of money into their building. You know, where would that be best spent to see you know, a return on it in the form of tenant satisfaction, which is how we're measuring this? Right. Well, I think that the, all of the granularity that we developed around the various features and how much people would pay for it would be just a direct drive for that kind of a decision, 100%. And I think that the results are... Very differentiated, to your point, about 8 or 10% are interested in dog services, but the numbers were 94, 96 around things like smart thermostats and microwaves. So it's very differentiated, and I think it it creates a very strong roadmap for how to prioritize. Mm-hmm. Where, and, and balconies. Balconies was kind of consistently yeah, up, up to the Balconies is going to be hard to retrofit on an existing yeah. property, but... Uh, That's a big... For new builds. Yeah. For new builds, it's clear you need to have balconies on each unit. Yes, and thinking about not maintaining your balconies is a terrible idea. Right. Yeah. But you see a lot of balcony repairs going on across the city. And then yeah. it may just be the age of the buildings. Everything was built in the 1960s. And so those things just need to be updated. Well, and balconies are a strong offender in creating thermal breaks that reduce the energy performance of older properties. And so if you are doing a balcony retrofit, investing in an architect who understands how to create an appropriate thermal protection so that you're not bringing the cold straight into the units, and that will definitely improve tenant satisfaction. Is that simply just by the design of the the railings, whether you use glass or the scope, the size, the the gaps between the the connections? Like, how does that work? Yeah, it's the slab, and the, if it's just a continuous pour to the floor, then the cold can just run straight into mm. the unit, and so you need to create a thermal break there. With rubber, you can insulate around it. There's a lot of different things that you can do, and there's been a huge improvement in the technology around that because it shouldn't undermine the structure. But if you are doing a balcony retrofit, that would be money well spent because it'll reduce the operating costs in the building and it will improve the tenant thermal comfort a lot. And if you're doing it anyway. (laughs) Yeah, and it doesn't sound like it's much of an additional cost for some long-term savings. It may actually improve the durability long-term of the unit if you're a long-term holder. Yeah. So it's definitely, that's separate from, that's from just the survey. My, yeah, that's of my course. personal yeah, no. advice. Yeah. <laughs> and my personal opinion of balconies is the smaller the unit, the more you need a balcony just to reduce the sense of claustrophobia. It's. I remember when I was younger, I had a, a unit that must have, one bedroom, and it must have been close to 900 square feet. 
but it was just cold concrete, no balcony, tiny windows, and it felt small for that reason. But and 900 square feet is like a three-bedroom today. That's, yeah, right? that's, uh, it was a very old building. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> We've talked a lot about the cost and willingness to pay for a variety of sort of in-suite products or components, but what about amenities? What kind of things did the survey reveal that people are willing to pay up for for amenities? Well, not surprisingly, we have touched on some of these things like soundproof walls. I would consider that an amenity. Updated kitchens with more appliances, ensuite bathrooms, which is hard to retrofit, but easy to design in from the beginning. Those are the sorts of, and balconies. Those are the sort of big picture. For, from, for, uh, in, con- right. In from, the suite. In a suite, yeah. For amenities in terms of the building, the number one thing was overwhelmingly was fitness facilities. And 42, 43% of the renters said they would pay significantly more. And the preponderance was between 150 100 and $150 a month, which is a lot. That's a yeah. lot more than they would pay for other things, including wow. dedicated parking spaces or other things. Other amenities that came in in the 20 20% range included a daytime concierge, and a lot of that was correlated with the e-commerce take-up, a party room, and secure key access. So it's not that security isn't on the radar. It's just not in the top 10 points. And people were willing to pay more for high-tech security for those people who for whom that was interesting. So we had lower scores than we had anticipated on things such as common lounges. And here's a big surprise, an office area, like a work or study space. That's another amenity that is a must-have stateside. And people aren't so much working from home and looking for a computer center at their buildings in Canada, but the units themselves need to... More outlets was an example of a a category for anyone in a unit that was more than five years old. They were asking for more outlets. That was another thing. That's here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an example of some of the things that we looked for. You think and only five years... I guess that was the line in the sand, but if if it's 1960s era, yeah, there'd be a limited amount of outlets for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we've all, you know, stayed at hotels across the country. And when you're in a very old hotel, you'll walk around and realize they were not envisioning the modern lifestyle when they put in one wall unit in the entire room. That's what I noticed the most, especially, you know, you'll go to, you know, Chateau Laurier in Ottawa, very, very old building. You cannot find a plug in there to save your life. Yeah. I live, I lived in a, an apartment eight years ago now, but I extension cords running all over the place just to get, <laughs> just to get things That's plugged in. Right? Oh yeah. And, I, and they were probably 30 year old extension cords I had stolen from my parents' house. Right. But they were just running everywhere just to plug things in. Yeah. Well, did you have a surge protector too? No. Why, why would you do that? <laughs> to, yeah. to protect your investment yeah. in your uh, smart systems. Right. To go back to the number one amenity fitness room. I think that the, the you know, the reason People can justify paying more for that because there's a very easily quantifiable price you can pay on it. If not there, you're going a good life down the street, you know, at the cheap end or, you know, one of the more expensive options, the higher end, and you know what you're paying there. You know what that's costing you and what you're saving. So it's an easy translation to say, well, yeah, I'm saving myself 50, 50, $60 a month in a gym membership. Absolutely pay more to have it in building convenient, not to travel to it. You can see why that would be the number one. Yeah. Well, this is a really subtle point, but the take up was greatest in the older population. So it was interesting on that particular item, it was like 80-some percent for renters over the age of 50 wanted a fitness facility in their building. And that may be a corollary to the point you just raised. 
Very interesting. It's, some, you know, the granularity really provides a lot of insights. And challenges the preconceived notions, it sounds like. Right, because I would have imagined that the older cohort would not have no, would not have been such a high number of eighty something percent. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, once you hear the figures, you can construct a scenario under which that would be the case. You know, young people might view their gym time as something that is social, and so they want to go to a hip gym where people that the singles that they want to meet might be uh, taking a Zumba yeah. class. And people in my age group are like, "I just I want it in the building, or I'm not going." Yeah, right. And, yeah, uh, and I wanted to have yeah, I wanted to be isolated. Yeah, yeah, leave me alone. And yeah. I don't need to have a hundred people watching my yoga class or personal tra- personal trainers walking around asking if they can give you any help or tips for that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, previous podcast guest. John English of Tricon, he has a large building coming on stream very, very soon that uh, we toured not too long ago. And the gym there, I'm probably going to get this number wrong, but somewhere between ten and 16,000 square feet. It is not just a little broom closet that somebody stuck a treadmill in and calls it a workout. It's a big, very significant gym and it takes a significant amount of space. You know, There's a real cost associated with that. So they're big believers in this is going to drive, drive rents and drive value in the building. Yeah, well, that's clearly another, it will. That's another difference between North America and Europe. I, we don't have any properties, and we don't have any competitor properties in Europe with fitness facilities in the apartment units. That there are gyms all over the place, and there's some. We actually have some apartment properties and mixed use properties that have a gym, and it actually drives our rents in the mixed use context. But it's not like it's a amenity only for the residents. In the U.S., even in your most modest workforce housing arrangements, you do need to have some fitness facilities. It's a, it is becoming a must-have rental feature, and I think that that's becoming more true in Canada. If you're uni- if you're building us more than 40, 50 units, people expect something, some kind of gesture in that regard. So if anybody's picked up a newspaper at all since October 20th, you might have noticed, of course, that cannabis is now legal. And one of the one of the many, 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 many headlines that dominated that topic was uh, some of the landlords opposing usage in units. Now, of course, this survey was conducted prior to that legalization date, but the idea that weed was going to be legalized, I guess, was that's right. was, was, yeah. was, no, aware, we was added, available. We added cannabis to the questionnaire this year just specifically for that reason because we wanted to get a line of sight about how people were feeling about it. So there were three parts to that question. The first is, do you live in a non-smoking building? So we would be able to differentiate that. And interestingly, only 43% of people reported that they're in a non-smoking building. I would have thought that based on code, that number would have been you know, way higher, double probably. So in terms of a preference for no smoking buildings, about a third, of a little under a third of residents said that it was preferred and possibly essential. Does not matter was a third. Nice to have 40%. So in choosing to rent, does it matter if the building permits smoking in your unit of weed? And there was only 2.6% of respondents that said, yeah, it's, it's essential to them that they have the right under their lease agreement to smoke cannabis in their own residence. There were 12.5% of people who said that they would pay more to ensure that they were in a no-smoking building, and they don't want to be in a building where people are smoking weed specifically, or anything for that matter. So the don't care category 
Everybody should be able to do what they want, provided that the building can control the smell, was 21.8%. Would rent in a smoking building, provided that they could prove to me before I rented that the smell isn't going to drift, that was 30%. And I would never rent in a building where smoking was prohibited of any kind was 32.8%. So we found that, I mean, maybe people's attitudes will change over time, but I think that smoking is one of those subjects that people are a little bit touchy about. And And when you look at the percent of people that really urgently want to have the ability to smoke marijuana in their units it's extremely small at least yeah. in terms of what people were willing to admit at the before time it was legal. <laughs> yeah i wonder if you're gonna get a drastically different response <laughs> well, now that it's tuned. like yeah i can't get arrested for this now right <laughs> well they have a disconnect there too in terms of people that you know currently are or i guess previous to legalization consuming it illegally in a building regardless of the policy of the building so there's a that'd be a different set of uh, numbers there but, yeah Yeah, Yeah, well, I mean, that may be a topic that people really do want to understand a little bit more granularly, and people may have some questions about that. But we did put it in there because we thought it was timely. And landlords must be curious about what their tenants are thinking, right? Yeah, I mean, last year we dropped the questions around Airbnb. The year before we had really zeroed in on that. And it's not universally legal. And people were, there were very few people were fussed about Airbnb at that time. And maybe it just wasn't being adopted that well. We dropped that question in favor of this question this year. And so it's we're at that time of year where we are starting to think about and invite input from people. It's part of the reason I think you asked me to come in and talk a little bit about this because the presentation was in September. So we gear up now. We do the renovation of the questions. I think we're really happy with the dashboard. We've had a couple of different providers and the feedback on how that works, how user, how the user interface is easy to work with or not. All of that, all of those kinds of things have been ground out of the process. So now we're really focused on getting the questions aligned with where people really have interest and then pushing adoption. So if I, I think you're going yeah, to on our on our show notes, we'll put a link to where you can contribute questions or or it'll be through a, an informa or provide what you would like to hear in the next survey to the informa planning committee. So we'll have those we'll have that guidance and that link in our show notes. Great. Yeah. And that would be the same information for if you want to volunteer to publicize the fact that this survey process is underway in your buildings, how you do that too, where to sign up. And there's some additional information that you get by rights if you help with the promotion of the survey. So you don't, there's, there's an interim step that I probably skipped over earlier between just dealing with the free information and dealing with the full paid information. There's a, a little bit of additional features that people who help with socialization of the, with the survey process get access to. Yes. Well, thanks so much, Amy. That was that was wonderful discussion as always. We didn't get into some other discussions, but I, I'm going to put this out there and you don't have to say yes now, but we'd love to have you back sooner rather than later and maybe, maybe talk about some other things beyond the survey, like some of the, the things that, that you're experiencing and you're seeing in your business because you have so many insightful 
things that you're seeing in your in your day-to-day life. So again, thank you very much for coming on. I would like to do a shout out to a gentleman named Scott Stevens, a student of the Urban Land Economics who had kind of reached out and had, uh, was a fan of the show. So shout out to Scott. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. And you know, again, a reminder that you can go on to our show notes to find some of this information about the survey. The presentation that Amy had done a couple months ago is available in a video form. Also, the, the slideshows that she had used will be there, uh, as well as some additional information. Again, of course, you can find the podcast on all social media platforms. And again, thanks to our sponsor, First National. And you can also find some of my presentations on this and technology and other subjects because I do a lot of speaking at conferences and events regularly. And we do carry those in our YouTube channel on the Avis and Young Oh, website, great. Yeah. So. And so we'll put that as well on the show notes. So lots of information if you're, if you're interested in following up some more of the stuff that we discussed today. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Amy. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.